We've been talking about unleashing the king. So some of you think I'm silly wearing a crown and putting a scepter in my hand. Well, that's what we've been talking about. It would seem to be silly that I have to use props in order to convey or unveil a truth that may be in our hearts. Now think about it. I don't think any of you would wake up in the morning and say, hey, honey, by the way, I'm the king. Get that straight. Make me some coffee. And then you know that when you go back and you're going into work the next day, you realize you have a black eye or something like that. And then what happened? told my wife I was the king. That didn't go by too well. But the thing is, is that what we don't imagine in our hearts could actually be played out in fun. Because too often we don't think about it. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when we wake up in the morning, we say, Lord, I want to die to self today. I want you to live. We're saying, Lord, dethrone self. I want you to be king. And that takes not just an announcement. It takes a heart of surrender. And as we're going to see, as we have seen in the last two weeks, we're talking about holding the scepter. We were talking about last week loosening the scepter. Because remember, when you're loosening it up, you're still holding on to it. I still got a little bit of control left on it. But as we looked at the different stories in the book of Matthew, we recognized that within each narrative, there was one where the young rich ruler was holding on to it. And then last week we found out that Peter started to loosen it up when he was walking on water. But this week we're going to talk about someone else who in a narrative would possibly let it go. And so we have to ask those questions because we don't often know what that means. We're struggling with that understanding. And so we have to continue to challenge ourselves, realize that, you know, God's asking us to do something cool and we've got to be challenged on that end. So as we look at, as we're going to look at the particular passage that we're going to be heading into, you have an outline in front of you and I want to talk a little bit more about holding the scepter because before you let it go, you have to know what you're holding on to. Last week we talked about control, fear, and the unwillingness to change. In our lives, as I talked about last week, change happens in everything we do every day. Seasons change, time changes, we change our clothes, we change our minds, we change cars, we change mistresses, but I hope you're not. And we change different things that are going on in our lives, but when change really has to occur, how come it's so difficult? Because maybe sometimes we're just holding on to that scepter and we're saying, no, I don't want to change. I want it the way I want it. Because change would require for me to let go of the scepter. And this is challenging for each one of us. A lot of us have to ask that question because we all like it our certain ways. Whether we're at home, at work, whether we're out with family, when we're grown up, when we're mom and dad and we transition, now we have our own families. We still liked it our own way. When we would go back home and we walk into our old homes where we grew up and we still would like to go back to when we were a kid. But we recognize that things change. So one of the things we want to talk about today in holding the scepters, you're looking at your outline, is the first thing is prestige and respect. So often what we struggle with, many that do, they struggle with prestige in life. Most want to be respected but are not willing to do the work that involves earning respect. So respect is earned more than it's an announcement. 
you're not just respected because you have a position at a job. You have to earn it. And it's hard because when you go to a job, sometimes people have history and then they put you into a place where they expect you to fill the spot of a historical figure from the past. So, you know, we all want to earn respect, but respect takes work. It's equivalent to value. When we are valued, then we feel respected. So it kind of comes hand in hand. Most men want to be respected. I recall challenges in my marriage at times when I didn't feel respected, but it wasn't Joya who was having the problem, it was me. See, I wasn't feeling respected. As though I put up some holding the scepter and saying, I must have it this way. And see, what often happens is in marriages, we want to be respected, but we demand it, we don't earn it. And so we have to ask so many different kinds of questions. What does it mean to have prestige? Are we really chasing after it? See, when a man is not respected, then one looks to others or something to fulfill that void. That's why when marriages are going to divorce, it's because a man is then looking for someone else who will respect him. And when a woman is looking for a divorce, she's looking to be valued and loved and secure. And so you come with this idea of the, you know, the whole thing of performance-driven and prestige and recognize me and all that. Number two, there's power. See, when we hold on to the scepter, we want power. Now, many of you would never, ever admit that and say, I don't want power. I'm not interested in power. I just want it my way. It's not power. I just want to do it my way. It's got to be my way, but it's not power. I'm not running around saying I got to have the power. You got the power. Dun, 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 dun. No, that's not what it is. It's not that. It is something else. Because look at, in the 2016 Forbes magazine, there was the most five most powerful men and women in the world. One was Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. He influenced much before 2016. And what did he do? He goes and meets with the Syrian president and then decides to help him to keep his position in Syria. And he works so much that he influences it that he becomes part owner of Syria in the sense that he's calling the shots. And then he scales back and says, I'm not doing anything. I'm just helping him. I have nothing to do with Syria, but yet he's calling the shots in order to help the Syrian president. And so we know his influence with Iran and North Korea has caused turmoil around the entire world for the past five years. He's been accused of interfering with the 2016 presidential elections, and and it's still going on, which he vehemently denies. It continues where now we have a probe going on in America. It's causing disunity. It's causing chaos. But yet this man's saying, I don't know what's going on. I deny anything. That's usually an interesting figure that has power. Then you have our president, Donald Trump. Should I say no more? A very powerful businessman for the past 30 years did the impossible. Who would have thought or betted on the fact that he would become the president? Yet he did. And whether we agree with him to be the president or not, the Lord has allowed this man to be here for this time as our president. And yet, as powerful as he he continues to be because of the fact of some of the decisions he makes or not, he's a powerful man in the world, 
And it becomes this thing where, where you have power and kingship, you rule. And then you have Angela Merkel, again, of Germany. And she's top three, number three. Has a liberal approach of the European coalition, but yet she somehow got reelected when they were questioning whether she would be able to get in. But yet she worked very hard. She's a woman of strength. And she was able to grow in the German economy. She was able to continue to allow it to grow. Although they had a slump in 2015, the GDP went up in the 16. But again, it goes on. And you have the president and of China, who is very influential. And then you have number five, who's Pope Francis. But these are powerful figures that we look in our America, in our world. And it affects how we look at life. Now, why am I sharing all this? Because too often we're influenced by what we see. When we see individuals leading and ruling and dictating or just being presidents or not presidents or just being influencers, non-influencers, it affects how we view power. But I always ask the question, can power be done by being a servant? Can we be influential by serving others? I mean, really, the president is supposed to serve us. We are his bosses. We vote him in or not. We vote, you know, we vote her in or not. But the whole idea is that we have to ask that question because too often we see it differently. And number three, a prize, recognition. You know, too often we look at the prize. Sometimes with holding the scepter, we want the prize. When people in their respected areas of careers, especially celebrities, perform in order to receive an award, do they do it for the physical trophy? Probably doesn't cost much. Do they do it for the Grammy? Do they do it for the trophy to say, look, but no, it, what it does is it represents and reflects the accomplishment, the respect, the value, the hard work, the dedication, the determination. But what is the main motivator? I think it's recognition. Do you know that most people who become World Series MVPs, Super Bowl MVPs, NBA Final MVPs, whether NHL, any sports, they receive notoriety? and endorsements. Most athletes get these through money deals. You know, the top five highest paid celebrities and endorsements of probably of all history. Number one is David Beckham, Adidas, $160 million. Incredible. I mean, and that's, he doesn't even have to play anymore. He's done. I mean, he doesn't have, but he loves to play, but he's getting a trophy for, and he's getting recognition, but he's getting the money. See, where there's recognition in a prize, in a recognition, you get money that is attached to it in the world. I expect the money. Show me the money. Number two, Tiger Woods, although it's really been obsolete for the last three or four or five years, made $100 million on a Nike commercial. LeBron James, $90 million Nike would pay him. 50 Cent, who is a rapper, Reebok, 80 million. Beyonce, Pepsi, 50 million. I'm in the wrong business. I got to do something here. This is crazy. I mean, I cannot get over that. It's Pepsi. I mean, it's a drink I hate, but yet $50 million. Jay-Z, her husband, 20 million for Samsung. I got a Samsung. That's not fair. I mean, I could speak and maybe make, give me half a million and I'll take it. But the idea is that all of these Catherine Zeta-Jones, when she was doing the T-Mobile commercials, $20 million. And then you have Jared from Subway, $15 million. The man lost 245 pounds and now an unfortunate scandal. You see, 
it's, it's just unfortunate that you see this happening with all of this. But when I'm sharing this is to say that in the world, that's what they're doing. They're holding on to a scepter. And we have to ask the question, what does God want? Does God want us to hold on to the scepter as believers? As we look in Matthew, as we're turning to Matthew and we're looking at another narrative this week, we're looking at chapter 8, verse 5, and we're looking at the centurion. Because here was a centurion who was a man who was in power. He had a hundred men under him. And he was able to lead and direct them and tell them what they had to do. And what happened was he was a centurion who had the power to determine. Now, we have to understand something about in the Roman government and the military. They didn't really care about relationships. You were not someone they valued. They didn't really care whether you existed or not. You were just a person that had to carry out an agenda. They had to overcome all the other thrones and all the other countries. And so they were just interested in you being strong and being able to be a slave or a servant. Many who were were slaves. There were tons and tons of slaves in the city of Rome, over a million of them. And yet too, too often that we don't see is that Rome really didn't care about people. But here was a centurion who was under that power, under that influence, under that understanding that as he wasn't as important, he would have to then trickle down and say, you're not as important either. So here we see in the context that Jesus, chapters 5 through 7, he's at the Sermon of the Mount, and then he comes off the mountain in verse verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Okay, now you have to understand the word followed is the word in the Greek for discipleship. So it means that people were willing to let go of their scepters and say, I will follow you, Jesus. Now, Jesus was a nomad. He didn't have any, there was no interest to see him because he would be going from one position or one location to another. He would never settle. So why would you want to follow someone who doesn't settle unless there's something influential in their lives? So when they were seeing Jesus, they were willing to follow him. They dropped the scepter. People were amazed with his authority. Just put your finger in there. I'm going to go to Luke 4.32 because it, it, we're going to share that a little bit going on too. Luke 4.32 because it says, why was he so influential? Why did people follow him? And it says this, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. See, he possessed authority which is this true king and so when you look at this you have to understand the question is that what in the world why why would people follow this man unless he was that influential i would never leave my family unless someone changed me and moved me but these people were willing to follow him because of his authority but he didn't have authority on earth not the way it was visioned Nobody really wanted to follow some guy in a cloak who didn't look like a king. He was just a simple servant-like, but he was a teacher, and they respected his authority. But why would you follow him? There was something there. So here we go on, and we see that, that the word authority was mentioned 30 times in the, in, the, in the Gospels. And a disciple doesn't demand or command, but surrender to the master. It is a subjective submission It is not one, but it's, I'm sorry, it's not a subjective submission, it's an objective one. We are all called to surrender to the Lord. When we serve others, are we really serving Christ? 
And why? Because Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom of many. So here he is, the king, not willing to be served, but to serve. Here we are as disciples, yet too often Christians are always demanding and commanding what they need to have. It's called the membership privileges. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's, it's a core problem in the church. This is my church. And what happens is, this is my church. Don't you dare change my church. Don't you? I'm a member here, and I need my privileges. Because I have an American Express card, and I have a Visa card, and I have a MasterCard, and they give me privileges. I get cash backs, and I expect something back. You see the mindset? It's like when we say we're members of something, we start to say that to ourselves. I get caught up in that. Hey, I'm a member. I'm paying my dues. What am I getting in return? Because that mindset sits in us. We don't even realize it. It's subtle. It's subliminal. And we have to ask that question often. What does it mean to be a member? What does it mean in reference to authority? What does it mean? What's God calling on us? Are there expectations? Do we expect money? Do we expect others to fulfill what we want? And too often we have to ask those questions. And as we understand, Christ was a servant. To be in Christ means that all will have the privileges and the benefits of the kingdom. You see, Jesus is not denying us benefits. He gives us benefits. He gives us the greatest benefits. But in order to get those benefits, we have to be a servant. We don't go around hoisting our scepter and saying, I want it my way. It's got it's to be my way. I've been here too long not to get it my way. But God is saying, you want to be great in my kingdom? Follow the king. And what does the king do? He serves. And how often do we have to be reminded that? I'm not telling you that. This is the message of the gospel. And the servant is a word in the Greek that means slave, doulos. And so we have to be willing to give of our all, drop everything we want to have, every part of privilege that we can imagine. But yet God says, I'll give you those benefits and those privileges, but you just need to be a servant. And too often we forget that. Too often as believers, we don't catch it. And we have to ask that question. Are we servants or are we members of a church? And in Matthews 8, verse 5, he goes, when he had, he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now, Capernaum is a, is a town northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, 680 feet below sea level. It was a major trade economical center in the North uh, Galilean region. This town was the home for Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. So five of the 12, this was their home. Christ ministered in Capernaum often. Things would happen. The word would spread. As you look in Luke and other areas in the book of John, it was often that whatever happened at Capernaum, the word would spread. People would find out what Jesus did. When he would, when he would perform a miracle, people would hear about it. It's not like today with the social media. It's not a telephone. But the word was able to be spread. And what happened more often than not was that when Jesus performed the miracle, it would bring the supernatural, the divine. People would recognize that it was impossible to happen in its logical sense physically, but in a physical realm, we would say no. To a spiritual realm, we would say yes. 
And see, as I said, a centurion, centurion was one who was uh, over 100 men. The way that the military set up under the Roman uh, guard was that six centurions gathered into a cohort. There were 10 cohorts in a legion. A legion was 6,000 people, and each legion had six tribunes. But the centurion had authority over that hundred and made spontaneous decisions. He was a leader. He was a director. He commanded, and it was done. He had servants that he didn't have to say it twice. You know when we're parents, don't make me say this again. Don't make me tell you you need to go downstairs and clean up the basement. And then they don't go, and you go, don't make me say this again. And then all of a sudden, they're not going, all right, one, two. Okay, the third time, don't make me say it again, or that's it, it's done. And what's done? Nothing's done. Their influence, the influential part is they manipulated me. I'm going on and on and on, until finally I say, I'm done, I can't figure this one out. Not with the centurion. He commanded, it was done. He commanded, it was done. And he went on and on and on. And the power and the, the control and that people feared him, that's how Rome was built. And yet over and over and over we have to understand, but yet the scriptures are clear that how could you advance from a centurion to a senior one? You would, you would go in from centurion to a senior one by saying this. You would be from 600 men or from 100 men to 600. You would be called one who would be under a cohort. So you'd be one of those six centurions in a court. It's called the senior centurion. So you would promote your, you'd be promoted from oversight of 100 to 600, and now you have 600 men that answer to you. And yet, these were people that were influential in their power. But we come across one here in chapter 8 who we have to ask that question because, see, here he is loosening the scepter. Here he has all this power... He can command anybody to do whatever they want him to do under the Roman law, and yet he was willing to loosen it up. And so, in your outline, it says he was loosening the scepter. What did he do? Well, first he said this. He, he, he went up and he appealed to him. Now, wait a minute. This is a centurion. He appealed to Jesus. Jesus was just a simple man. Why would a centurion talk to a Jewish rabbi? It was not even possible. A centurion wouldn't even talk to one. In fact, Jews and Gentiles couldn't even converse and meet together. But why would a centurion do this, as we see in the scriptures? You're familiar with the story. But see, too, what he does is he was, often what we have to ask that question, too, is are we going to be prone to help people or cause resistance among us? See, the servant would want to help, not cause resistance. The disciples should help, not cause resistance. Well, here's a centurion, a Gentile, who's willing to appeal to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And too often when we can loosen up the scepters, we can say, hey, maybe I need to ask for help. Maybe there's something impossible in my life and I could just ask for help. So when we hold it, we're just saying I'm going to hold it and I'm not going to ask for help. But when we loosen it, we start to say, maybe I need help. And so what happens is we have to be prone to assistance, not causing resistance. That's what he was doing. He could have caused resistance. He could have. He could have given Jesus a hard time. He could have said something malicious, but he didn't. He was willing to come to Jesus, and he was willing to come with the proper request. 
See, when a person is always ready to fight without proper cause, this doesn't help but hurt the situation. When a person's ready right from the beginning, I'm going to fight. If they're always in that position of fighting, they're going to cause more hurt than help. That doesn't bring about assistance. It brings about resistance. Would it have been appropriate for the centurion to command Jesus? Would it have been a, he would have accomplished demanding Jesus to heal his servant? Was it that, that when a person wants something done, that he or she reverts to commands and demands and slandering? Is that going to happen? But we have to continue to, to just probe this. The centurion was willing to break rank, break aside again the grain, against the grain, and to speak to the Jewish teacher in order to get help for his servant. Why? Because he cared about his servant. Watch the word here. Watch the word what he says. He says this. He goes, Lord. He calls Jesus Lord. It's not Adonai, it's not good teacher. It's Lord. You know what the word is in the Greek? It's kurios. You know what that word is? Yahweh. In the Greek Septuagint, it's Yahweh. That's what we see when we look at Moses at the burning bush. Who should I say has sent me to come against Pharaoh? He says, I am. Remember I said last week, ego a me, I am. Lord, Lord, you are Lord, you are God. I am a centurion. I have the power to tell people what to do, but I am ready to let go of my scepter. You're Lord. You are king. You are Yahweh is what he was saying to Jesus. Isn't that not crazy? I mean, here he is standing before a, a, a teacher who did not look like a king. And what does he do? He says, Lord. How often are we as his disciples saying, Lord? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. How many of us are willing to drop whatever we enjoy in life and saying, I need to disciple someone? Yes, Lord. You know, when people say, well, you know, it's optional. It's not optional. We're called to disciple. It's the purpose of the church. Guess what? You're the church. This isn't your church, the building. You are the church. I'm the church. I'm called a disciple. It's not a, let me check and see in the scriptures if it says that I need to disciple. We're called a disciple. We're supposed to say, yes, Lord. Not well, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm kind of busy and I'm really tired and I had a long schedule and God said, yes, Lord. We have to say, Lord. This is a Gentile who says, Lord. I mean, I stop at the word and just amaze. My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Do you know what that word servant is in the Greek? It's the word for child. It's a word for child. He saw his servant as though it was his child. That's why he had such compassion. That's why he wanted to see him healed. Do you know the centurion could have said, out, give me another servant. Throw him out on the streets. I don't need this nonsense. Give me another servant. I got things to do. He's getting in my way of my agenda. I don't care about him. I care about my agenda. No. He said, my servant, my son. My son. Do we have a heart of compassion? Do we look at the people of God See, when you disciple someone, you say, my son. 
And see, too often my servant is lying paralyzed. You know what it is lying there? I know you might say, Bruno, you're, you're really looking at the word lying. Yes, lying right there is, is, is in the word of the Greek to cause to move from one location to another through a use of forceful motion. See, the illness caused immobility. He couldn't move. He was lying there paralyzed. He couldn't move his body. He was lame. And yet the centurion cared enough to love on him. Look with me to chapter, chapter 4 of Luke. Just look with me there if you can. This is important because this lies into all what Jesus is saying here. In verse 16 is Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. Jesus is being rejected by the Jewish Sanhedrin. It says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's around a bunch of Sanhedrin, people who are very smart, intelligent. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recovering of the sight to the blind, to set a liberty those who are oppressed, meaning the gospel, the gospel, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what did he read? Isaiah 61, 1 through 2a. Because you know why? Isaiah 61 through 2a is the first coming. 2b through 3 is the second coming. So here he's reading about the first coming, and he's saying, I'm here. Your king is here. I'm here, (laughs) y'all, in the flesh, baby. And that's what he's telling to them. And you know, he went on, and he goes like this. He goes, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Why? Because it was customary to do so. Each one of them would stand up and read a scripture. Here he reads a scripture, and he shares it with them specifically. Then he goes down, he goes, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Messiah. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote Quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your whole town as well. Oh, interesting, Capernaum, we find that. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many windows or widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut down in three years and six months and the great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there was many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only the name in the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill of which the town was built. So they would throw him down to the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. He snuck out. He they heard about Capernaum. They heard about the performing of, the, of, of all these uh, miracles because he's the king. He's telling them and they're rejecting him. And see, that's what happens too often. We don't realize that God is saying to us, are we saying yes, Lord? Are we asking those questions? See, God wants us to be prone to being gracious and not malicious. We have a king in our midst. He's Jesus. He is the one whom 
whom the centurion recognizes he is Lord. And Jesus even promises him when he says, I will come and heal him. Now, wait a minute. Let's stop. He, he can't do that. He can't associate with a Gentile. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. He wasn't supposed to do that. But in his compassion, in his love, the centurion says, I'm all in. You are Lord. I'm letting it go. Jesus is saying, I'll come and heal you. I'll heal your servant. I'll take care of everything. He was willing to do so. See, what God wants us to do is we, he wants us to be gracious like the centurion, and he also wants us to be humble. Number three is that be prone to be humble, not to rumble. Too often, as the people of God, we are rumbling. Let's get ready to rumble. I mean, that's the mindset that goes on in the church often because we're looking for people to meet our membership privileges. And we're not willing to say God didn't call us to be members. He called us to be servants. See, a servant is humble. That's what the centurion said. I am not worthy. Meaning he's saying, I am not sufficient or qualified or able or competent. He recognizes limitation. But wait a minute, he was a centurion. How could he do so? He was in a world of Rome where he wasn't. And he goes, in my roof, he goes, he goes on in verse, verse 7 and 8, and he goes, and he says, under my roof, because I'm not worthy to have you to come under my roof. Why? Because under my roof, usually, who's the authority? See, a house is a man's castle, especially downstairs in the basement when you have a 70-inch TV with all the trimmings and the eagles are playing for you guys, not for me. But I don't have a 70-inch, I don't even have a basement that's finished. But the thing is, is that I sit here and I say, what's the recognition of the under the roof? Because he's saying, I'm not even worthy. Even if you're not supposed to be in my house, I'm not worthy for you to come. He recognized of his limitation. He recognized that he was not worthy. Third, letting go of the scepter means this. God meets us at the crossroad of his presence and our unworthiness. You see, as I just mentioned, he's talking about his unworthiness. And he's asked, and he continues to say, do you really believe that he, does he really believe that he was unworthy? And I ask the question to you and I, do we really believe we're unworthy? Do we really believe that he's king, we're servants, and we stand before the king every day? Is our lives reflect that? Are we saying, yes, Lord? Are we falling into discipleship? Are we willing to follow? Are we willing to follow even the centurion's example of dropping our scepter? Because that's what he's doing. He's, whatever agenda he had, he dropped it because he had such compassion and love that he wanted to be so gracious to his servant, his child, that he said, I'm giving it up. And often and often and often, what we have to ask ourselves is in a church, and you and I, we're sitting through this together with the leaders, and we're asking that question. Are we going to be able to advance and move forward as a church? Are we going to be able to advance if all of us are saying, I'm holding on to my scepter? Or could we imagine a church that says, Lord, I'm dropping my scepter. I will follow you. I will follow you, Lord. I want to be the servant that helps my brother or sister. The centurion was willing to give it all up, lose rank and possibly be killed, but yet he was willing 
to do it all for his servant. That's the grace, grace and humility that he had. But when he recognized the Lord, the presence, the curios, the Yahweh, is when he recognized his unworthiness. See, when a person holds a scepter, this is what the person could be saying to the Lord. I said, could be. I am still the king of my life. I still call the shots. I know what to do. If I need you, I'll call on you, Lord, when I need you. But Lord, I need to see whether your decision is sufficient for me. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't really know the pain. I feel the pain. You don't feel it. Lord, if I need you, I'll call on you. So often we do that. I know we're not going to admit to that, but I can say I can. Sometimes I just, I don't like God's decisions. Sometimes I'm like, God, what are you trying to do with my life? I've been through that. And I've had to be challenged. And the Lord has had to say to me, I have a plan. But it's when we surrender and submit, we can ask those questions. Could you imagine, is there room for Jesus in my heart? Is there room it sounds like a person who's still holding on to that scepter. But God is saying, wait a minute. We're called to be unworthy. I mean, John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3.11 said, I am not fit. That's the same word that the centurion said. The prodigal son says, I am not worthy. He used the same word in the Greek. We see the prodigal son. We see John the Baptist, the forerunner and the prophet, the one before Jesus, and the centurion who's a Gentile. But yet today in a Western American society for the church today, all around universally, we're having a difficult time finding people to say, yes, Lord. Because they're still holding on to the scepter. God is saying, you and I can meet him at the crossroads of his presence and our unworthiness. And unworthiness doesn't mean that we've committed a sin. Unworthiness just means that we're not worthy to be in his presence. That's where the power is. That's where the prestige is. That's where the membership privileges are. When we surrender to Christ and God is saying, yes, that's where a disciple says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. When we say, God, help me. Secondly, God meets us at the crossroad of his word and our cry for help. As we saw that the centurion cried for help, he was amazed, Jesus, in verse 10, when he said, wow, what faith. And then we look at Matthew chapter 15, the same thing with the Canaanite woman. She said, Lord, curious Lord. And Jesus, it was funny because she was sitting there, she wanted some food, and Jesus she, wanted, she was talking about food, but she really wanted Jesus to get help for this demon-possessed daughter. And he, she was mentioning about food, and they were using food analogy and crumbs. And Jesus didn't even answer her. And the, and the disciples said, Jesus, we got to get this woman out. She's disturbing us. She's getting in our way. And the woman still said, yes, Lord, I, I need you. I need your help. And the Lord said, I'm only going to the people of Israel. I don't talk to Gentiles. But the woman said, yes, it's true, but even... The Gentiles can get the crumbs off of the table. The dogs can get the crumbs off the table. And what she was saying is that the Gentile is willing to get some residual from the so-called people of God from Israel. And then the Lord turned around and said, wow, your faith is great. It's magnificent. That which you asked, it will be answered to you. An hour later, his daughter, her daughter was healed. But see, he was asking, he was challenging. He was challenging this woman. He didn't give in. He didn't give in to her demand. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me tell you why. And then all of a sudden, she let go and said, I need you, Lord, I need you. See, she met Jesus at his word and her cry. 
And that's where you and I have to understand. We've got to meet Jesus there. Lastly, God meets us at the crossroad of his promise and our obedience. Look with me again at chapter 8 of Matthew. Because he goes on in verse 11. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, reclining at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Talking about all kinds of people. All kinds of races and creeds, all people. And he goes, while the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's in recognition of a holding place called Gena, or we would say Hades. It's a place where it's separation totally from God who did not trust in Jesus. But the sons of the kingdom were people who were stubborn, stiff-necked, and still held on to their scepters. And one commentary said that I, was, I thought was really bold. He said, many Christians today have lost their focus. They believe they're in Christ, he goes, but they have no compassion for those who are far away from God. He goes, now this is the guy who said, he goes, I can't see that possible. You either have both, you can't have one or the other. You can't say you're in Christ and have no compassion for all the people around you. And you can't have compassion for all the people and say you're not in Christ. It comes hand in hand. You and I are in Christ. When we disciple someone, we have to evangelize. Evangelism starts and then discipleship follows. And discipleship influences us to evangelize. We have to have the perspective of reaching all people, not just our own. So when the church is here to reach the lost, we're to be interested in those who are far away from God because we want to share Christ with them. And this is what Jesus was saying to him. You know what? I just found someone who's a Gentile who I'm not supposed to be talking to. I'm not supposed to even go into his home, and I'm not allowed to do that according to the law. But you know what? This man had such great faith. He goes on to say this, verse 13. He says, go, let it be done as you believed. The servant was healed at that very moment. God, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. He said, I believe you. He says, it's done. Your obedience, my promise, your obedience, you found me. I'm the Lord. I'm the curios. I am Yahweh. See, when we let go of the scepter, we find rest, joy, hope, and we find the true king. That's when we find, when we let it go, we find joy, hope, rest, and all. Listen, look with me if you could, because in, in the Old Testament, in chapter 49 of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, this was a servant, suffering servant narrative in the Old Testament. And it was a chapter 42 and chapter 49. And each one said that the Israelites were called to be a light to the Gentiles. But what happened over the centuries is the, is the Jews started to look as the Gentiles as unclean and pulled away from them and did not become a light to them because they became a stiff, stubborn, stiff-necked people who were holding on to their scepters. And then we know in Romans 11 it says that the Israelites will be grafted, they won't be grafted in, they'll be taken out, and then the Gentiles will be grafted in. So if you are a Gentile today, it's due to the fact that the Israelites were stiff-necked, stubborn people. And Jesus, although we're all going to, it's just playing out from the Abrahamic covenant that we all are going to come to faith in Christ. Israelite and Gentile, one new man. But it's not the physical descent of a Jew that becomes a son of God. It's the spiritual descent when one believes on Jesus. But when we go on and we say, this is what Jesus was mentioning when he was talking about a banquet. He talked about 
a banquet there. And he says, when people will truly come from these to recline at the table, or another word for banquet. And we see that in the Old Testament in Isaiah 49, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time and a favor I have answered you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people who established the land, to appropriation to the desolate heritages. That's verse 8, and you can read on. But then in verse 20, or chapter 25, verse 6, you're, you're seeing a banquet table. Because always in mind did God, God, the God of Israel, had the people in mind, the Gentiles. So in the Old Testament, it wasn't just the Israelites as the people of God. He called out all people. And he said, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all, for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged well, wine well refined. And he goes on, and he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nation. He will swallow it up. But he has a, 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 a particular banquet there. And in 65, 13, he says the same thing. He's talking about a banquet. And he's calling out for all people. And he says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, my servants shall eat. But he tells the others who are not his servants, but you shall go hungry. Behold, my servants will, shall drink, but you will be thirsty. He's telling those who are not his servants. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Verse 13. This banquet, this place where God is setting up is for all people. And we today in a Western American society, we have to ask the question, if we're willing to let go of our scepters and follow Christ to be a servant, if we're willing to let it go and know he's the Lord, the true king, what can be unimaginable for this church? What can be unimaginable if we just put it on our hearts before the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I will be a servant. Yes, Lord, I will follow you. Yes, Lord, I will do whatever you tell me, even if it's uncomfortable. Yes, Lord, I will do whatever is necessary to move this church forward for the kingdom. You're, you're getting a letter this, in the next few days from the board from the team, from the leadership team, from the chairman. And you're going to get a letter about the report. And many of you wrote in there that you're willing, moderately or highly, are willing to do whatever possible to sacrifice to see this church to move forward. Here's your test. Not to me, not to the leadership. For goodness sake, it's to the Lord. It starts with him. So you're, not, you're taking this scepter before Almighty God and dropping it. That's what it is. We have our scepters, right, guys? We got to drop our scepters. We got, we got our own, own things that we got to work on. But each one of us, and what can be unimaginable if we could be the servants of the Most High God? I would love to be a centurion for just that moment, to have that kind of faith. But I want to encourage you because it has to be that Jesus is either the king of your heart or he's not. I'm not saying that. It's, it's, it's Almighty God. It's discipleship. He called out these people to follow him, and it wasn't easy. So as we are going to close up soon, we have a song called The King of My Heart, and I just want you guys to listen to it and just read the words and know that he's good and he cares for you. You know, um, I mentioned Scott Federoff earlier. 
His wife was uh, perform- or pre- preparing for a funeral on Wednesday for her mom. Tuesday, Scott was sleeping, was exhausted. He's a campus pastor of a 15,000 plus church, 1,000 people church, one of 10 campuses. He's in a big campus, in a big building. They're building up about three hours from our house north in Pennsylvania. She checked on him at five o'clock, he was snoring. Eight o'clock, she checked really quick, and then at 12 o'clock, he was unresponsive. He went on to eternity. Here, she lost her mom the week before, and her husband passes away. And he, she, she lost her brother two weeks prior. She is wrestling with, Lord, you are good, you are good, you are good. That's a wrestling, but he is. Even in the midst of tragedy, he is. It's just the emotion's not gonna feel that. And each one of us are going through that, but I just wanna encourage you. It's time for us to ask that question. Is he king of my life or not? It's not an emotional decision. It's either yes, Lord, or not. So I wanna encourage you as you're wrestling through that this week, as we go into Christmas, may this be a Christmas that you make a decision that will be a, a, a memory of saying, I will follow you, rededicating our lives to Jesus.